Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with Melissa Joan Hart. LL Cool J gave me some great advice. He had all these gold chains and I was like, wow, look at all these diamonds. And he said something to the effect of don't waste your money on something like this. Buy a house. Like he gave me like solid investment advice where I was like, save my money. Got it. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Ask actor Stacey Keach's loyal fans why they love him, and they'll point to a dozen different roles. He's played Richard III, King Lear, Hamlet, Falstaff, and Willie Loman. The trouble is, Linda, people don't seem to take to me. Keach has played captains and kings, pugilists, and pub crawlers. You son of a... But before you typecast him as strictly drama... Note Stacey Keach's role as Sergeant Stadenko in Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke or as the president of Duff Beer in The Simpsons. Take a hike, Duff man. You're a disgrace to the unitard. And I know I'll never forget his cameo on 30 Rock for its Couchtown commercials. When did we get so soft? You know what this country used to sit on? Logs, girders, poles. Being comfortable? That's not what America's all about. The great thespian Keach literally spit into the camera. For me, it was one of the show's funniest bits ever. Keach is perhaps best known as the irresistible, hot-headed, fedora-wearing detective, Mike Hammer. Are you for hire? No, not at the moment. My money's too dirty? I've already got a client. A lesser performer might have found himself with limited offers after what was Keach's longest-running job. Not so for the 71-year-old actor. His key to career longevity is simple. He says, quote, You need television and movies to make a living, but you'll be taken more seriously if you are stage-worthy. Stage-worthy in Chicago and Washington, but especially New York. New York audiences saw Keach most recently on Broadway in John Robin Bates's play, other desert cities. Two generations of a Southern California family gather at Christmas and find themselves reliving a painful family secret. Keach played the conservative patriarch, and for him, it was familiar territory. My dad and my, my mom and dad were very conservative, and every Easter, every Christmas, 
we would take trips to Palm Springs, the Shadow Mountain Country Club in Palm Desert where they had water slides, the very first water slide. <laughs> We'd spend a lot of time down there with a lot of conservative people in our business, you know, Republican, you know. So that was, a, that was an environment that I was very familiar with. What's it like for you now to work with younger actors who are uh, 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 very much of today? Do you find that the good ones operate the same way, or are they different? They're different. They're oh. very different. In what way? Well, I, for example, we had uh, Justin Kirk came in for uh, Tom, Tommy Sadowski to play Trip, the young, you know. And he's an actor that is, you know, wow, you know, I mean, every moment is something different. I mean, there's no consistency in terms. The only thing that was consistent was inconsistency. Right. You never knew what was going to come, you know. I kind of like that. Mm -hmm. I don't mind it. I mean, you know, I mean, a, as a younger actor, I probably would have gone nuts. I wouldn't have been able to deal with that because, I, you right. know. You know, relied I, on a pattern of some Well, kind. that's right. But I like I like that. I like spontaneity. I like flexibility. And I think that, you know, the, that as a, Well, you've also learned how to handle it. Well, that's it. Keech's philosophy about acting has changed over the years. I think in my early days, I started pretty much as, you know, from the outside and tried to get a, a, a fix on what the character looked like and then perhaps what he sounded like after that. But mainly it's look. I think, you know, that, that was when I... You know, and I, it, it wasn't the best way to start. I mean, I think it's better to start inside and work out if you mm -hmm. can. And mm -hmm. I, in later years, I've done that more and more. But I just finished a picture with Alexander Payne called Nebraska where he called me and he said, you, you know, you're, I was playing the bad guy in this. Uh, and he, he said, your teeth are too good. So the whole character became centralized in terms of, you know, what I— was in here, you know, and they, they made these snarly teeth for me, and mm. which were, it was great, you know, mm. and it sort of gave me a feeling, and I would look at myself in the mirror and make, you know, facial expressions, and that sort of gave me the feeling of where this guy was coming from, you know. But it varies. I mean, if you're playing, uh, like I was just down in, in Washington, I'm going to do Falstaff again next year, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, he's this big, fat, corpulent guy, and... Um, Interestingly enough, even with all the physical manifestations of that character, that character you you got to go inside. I mean, mm -hmm. that's you know. And when it's I not enough just to play the the look. No, not at all. Not at all. When I first did it, it was back in 1968. I guess 45 years ago. You did what in 68? Falstaff. And you, did they put a suit on you? Oh, huge! Just big. Yeah, you fat. were a very lean guy. I was. Yeah, you know, and, and I had to wear this big fat suit. Yeah. Theoni Aldridge designed his <laughs> leather costume for me. And and what did they do back then in terms of your face when you're lean? Whiskers. Oh, I see. Eyebrows. Right. Had a wig, of course. And a bulbous nose. And I was shooting a picture in uh, Great Barrington, Massachusetts, end of the road, with uh, James Earl Jones and Harris Yulin. I was shooting during the day and had to go on stage in the park at night, so... I'd get in the car at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We'd drive down the Taconic. And, no. And I'd be making up in the car oh in the front seat as we... You were shooting a movie with Harris Eulin and James Earl Jones in the Berkshires, <laughs> and you would drive down to Central Park? Yeah. To do eight shows? It, well, to do... Uh, the, the, oh, show. the park isn't eight shows. Yeah, the park yeah, is like the, a five shows right on the weekend. Well, I guess so. Yeah, it was on, we Thursday, didn't, Friday, two matinees. Right. They didn't do matinees, right. yeah. But nevertheless, it was an experience. I mean, you know, to be making up in the car and looking, you know, and buses would come up beside me and I'd be, you know, looking <laughs> at it, look at you know, what this crazy guy doing there. But it was an experience. But anyway, um, I went and saw Orson Welles do Chimes at Midnight. What he did, 
in that film. I thought it was a great performance. He personalized that guy so much. It was like he wasn't, he wasn't, he didn't put any spin on it at all. He was just talking right from his heart. I mean, it was right, you know, he was really centered on that guy. And I thought to myself, that's the key. I mean, you've got to find the equivalent of that for you when you, mm-hmm. when you get in there and when you get inside the fat suit. You're going to have to find the personalization of that, you know. What was it about you? I was way you? too young when I played him. Well, uh, I was going to say, what was it about you that back then when you were this athletic, yeah. lean, yeah. leading man in the movie business, you yeah. wanted to put a fat suit on? Why, why <laughs> were you running into the, why, why were you diving yeah. into a fat suit? Well, because, I, you know. It's, you wanted it, great parts. It's, it, exactly. And that is one of the, probably, I think, of all of Shakespeare's characters, I think it's probably one of the, you know, that and Hamlet are probably the two greatest, better than Lear, I think. I mean, it's a, it's a greater part. It's more, it's, there's much more going on with Falstaff, I think. And you're going to do it again? Yeah. So you did Falstaff the first time when? 68. 68 in the park. Oh, yeah, it makes me feel very young. 45 years later. 45 years later. You're going to play Falstaff. And I won't have to wear padding this time. No, I'm teasing. Well, who are you doing it for? Michael Kahn at the Shakespeare Theater in Washington, D.C. Oh, you're going to do D.C. Yeah, we're going to do both parts. We're going to do part one and part two. One of the great experiences of my life was doing those plays together in the park. We started at 10 o'clock at night. And we did we did part one and then part two and as the dawn came up in the uh, at the end of the evening we it was the early morning it was just when uh, Falstaff was being deposed by Prince Hal played by Sam Waterston uh huh yeah yeah what what's a role that you've played um, film or television or stage that was an extraordinarily difficult, if not even painful. And I don't mean the the the, the events around the show. I don't right, mean like right. you know the producer was a was, right, a, was right, a bastard. Right. I mean the, um, the, the 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 playing the part itself was extraordinarily Scottish difficult. play. The Scottish right. play. Where'd you do that? I did that in Washington as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. How I, long ago? Uh, that was about twelve years ago. How uh, old are you now? Seventy. I'll be seventy-two in June. So you did it when you were sixty years old. You played something that. like that. Yeah. 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 I used to say that, you know, you, you work your butt off playing that part, and the woman gets all the glory, you know, and it, 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 she takes all the thunder, you know. It, it, but it's, a, it, it's an amazing play. I mean, it's a, very, it's a beautifully written play, and it's very poetic, and it's very, got some wonderful ideas in it. But the guy is not the sympathetic. No. There's nothing, you know, you just have to give, you have to give up, you have to give up trying to make people feel sorry for you. That's a very good point you make because that's probably a flaw that I've had in a lot of what I've done. Well, we all do Is that. try to make them sympathetic. Well, we all, we want, you know, we want. And when I didn't, I think it worked better. You know, other yeah. roles I played, when I just gave up on that. Just, yeah, you know. So that was a tough role for you, why? It was, well, because, uh, you know, again, trying to make him sympathetic, wrong Bad choice, you know, and I I stole a, a bit from Olivier when you know when the ghost appears, he jumped on the banquet table and was you know he was he jumped on top of the table with the, all the, and I thought well that's you can't, yeah, might as well if, if you're gonna steal steal from the best go for <laughs> the it go. and then yeah so that and it worked that worked and from that point on you know once I sort of felt like I was you know I was the, the madness liberated me in a way it liberated yeah. it me it does doesn't it yeah then it was the more unglued you are the, the better the choices just come flying out of you sometimes it's like a vending machine sometimes if, exactly. you, if you're in that state that's, that's right yeah, yeah. Well, you grew up where I grew up in Southern California and your was, dad was in the business dad was in the business what did he do he was a, an actor director 
producer. He did a show, a radio show, called Tales of the Texas Rangers with Joel McRae. And that, when I was 12 years old, he used to take me down to NBC Studios, and uh, I would watch these actors do their thing. It was a live radio broadcast with all the foley and the sound effects and the horses and, you know. Right. And it, that was magic for me. And radio was how I sort of got into it. And your dad worked in radio. Yeah. That was his thing. That was his thing. He was also an actor. He played small parts. He used to, I remember he used to come home after doing a, a guest shot on Tales of on uh, the Lone Ranger or uh, what was the other? Dragnet, mm-hmm. Get Smart was a show that he did. And was your mom in the business? No, but she when she was at Northwestern, that's where my she met my dad, and they were at Northwestern uh-huh. together. And she was an actress at that time, but uh-huh. but uh, she never pursued it professionally. Did, what did he say to you? What was his uh, um, program with you, so to speak, in terms of your career? Did he want you to do this? No, or no? He didn't. absolutely not. He said, no, you, you know... Uh, Acting is not something you should do. You want to be—he wanted me to be a lawyer, and he wanted my brother to be a doctor. He said, "You know, it's too—it's too. This business is too fraught with insecurity." Did you almost do that? Did you think about? It? Well, you know what? When I—I I graduated, I, I started acting in high school, junior high school. I was doing plays, and every time I would get a part in a play, my dad would get very excited. He would get very animated, and he wanted to show me. Like for example, I was doing the stage manager in our town in mm-hmm. high school, and he would come in, and he—it he, was his favorite play. And he showed me, he said, no, when you're, when you're describing that, he said, you describe that big butternut tree. You've got to see that tree. And when you're, when you're working in the, in the drugstore and you're getting ice cream out of, the, um, out of the ice cream box, you've got to reach your hand way down in there and pull it. I mean, he was so animated. Uh-huh. He, he came Specific. Alive. Very specific and very much alive. So all of his BS about not do this, you're not going to do this, you're going to be a lawyer. You know, was it you think because he wasn't as successful as he wanted to be that he wanted you more to be a success? Because that's very common. That's that's what I experienced with my dad. My dad had no money. He was a school teacher. He was constantly under the gun and about money. It was tormented him. And I think when he looked at me, he was like, "It's less about what you want to be than it is about being successful at something." I think that's, well, our dad... Did he drive, yeah. yeah. Did he drive you in that direction? Absolutely. So when you wound up, did he live long enough to see you succeed? Yes, yeah. And what did he... he... Well, that that was the good part. (laughs) Then you're a genius. Yeah, well, then then it was a good thing. Yeah, because it wasn't until I got to Berkeley and I was, I started, you know, I was given an edict. You're not going to be in in any plays. First year, as a freshman, I was studying political science and economics. I mean, that was it. You know, I was going to... I was going to do the same thing. You know, and that was, you know, and... And, and, they don't end, think you're, and they don't think you're worthy in your first year. No. They want you to wait. That's right. So at the end of the first year, I, I got to play. I, I finally, you know, I, I passed, I got through the first year, and he said, okay, if you want to do a play, you can do a play. So I did a play, and and that was it. It was a play called To Learn to Love. It was written by one of the professors, and it was about these Navy guys, and it was a big hit on campus. Professor cast me the next semester as De Flores in The Changeling, a Jacobean play written by uh, Thomas Middleton. Middleton and Rowley, great, great piece. Sort of a Richard III type of character, and I had, you know, success with that. And my, my parents came and saw me, and they said, well, I guess, you know, you may have some talent, so maybe if this is what you want to do, we'll support you. So they... They came Knowing around. you had some talent, at least they thought you're you're on to something. Yeah, and I loved yeah. it. I mean, I did, and I, I couldn't Make stand economics and political <laughs> science, man. I was terrible. This was at USC. No, Berkeley. At Berkeley. So you're up in Berkeley. Yeah, and I you finished. Just, you went all four years there. Yeah, I went four. And you years. got a degree in drama. I got a degree in drama and English. Yeah. And yeah. then what did you do after that? Then I went. Uh, I went to Yale Drama School for right. a year. 
What was the program there? Was it was it longer than a year, or you finished the whole thing a, in a year? No, it was a three-year program. I only stayed a year. I and? I didn't like it at all. Why? Well, in those days, Constance Welsh was the acting teacher, and she was pretty much the, very much old school. They didn't know in those days whether they were training people for the academic theater or for the professional theater, to be teachers or to right. be professional. Big right? distinction. Big distinction, and and it was you know learning all these phonetic uh, signs and symbols, and I mean this had nothing to do with what I was interested in, and I had just. I had done two summers at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival between my junior and senior year and between my senior year and my first year at Yale and played some pretty good part. Henry V and Mercutio and Barone. I, sort of, I, I was getting my feet wet with Shakespeare and these big, wonderful was parts. Was Shakespeare a part of your, uh, your childhood and your upbringing? No. I mean, why yeah. are you so... You're pretty much steeped in Shakespeare in yeah. your early stage career. Why? This was just your own passion. Oregon Shakespeare Festival. That's was responsible for it. Yeah. That's you went there and you were at home. That's right. That's where it started. That's where it started. And then when I came back east, I was at Yale, and I wasn't crazy about Yale. No, phonetic, of, no more phonetic symbols. Right. No more for Yale. And Joe. And after that year, where Joe found you? Joe. Joe Papp. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm well. And thanks to Oregon Shakespeare Festival, you were ready. Yeah, I think so. Pretty and, much. And Henry Hughes, Saturday, he was, he was a drama critic for the Saturday Review, wrote a nice review of me doing Henry V. Joe had read that, and... When I got to Yale, I, I called the New York Shakespeare Festival one audition. He said, come on down. So I went and I met Joe Papp and in this smoke-filled office in, here in Manhattan. I sat down and he said, okay, what are you going to do for me? And I said, well, I'll do a little piece from uh, Henry V, Upon the King. And I started reading. I got three, I got, I, I, Upon the King, let us our lives. Said, That's it. And, uh, are you a member of equity? I said, no. <laughs> said, well, you're going to be. You're going to play Marcellus in my production of Hamlet this summer. Julie Harris is going to be playing Ophelia. Alfred Ryder is going to be playing Hamlet. We'll see you this summer. That was it. I walked out of there. I was floating on air. Sure. I mean, that was it. You know, and then summer of 63, 60, 64, 1964. And that did summer. You moved to New York? Yeah, for that summer I did, yeah. And then I went to England after that on a Fulbright scholarship to the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. For what? To study for a year. Well, why did you stop? Now you've got, I mean, <laughs> I wonder if this is the beginning of a pattern where yeah. you, you get the hot hand here and Joe Papp wants you. Yeah. And then you say, okay, hold on, fellas, i got to go over to London for a year. Well, that's it. And he was not happy about that. Joe, and interestingly enough, he was also on, I didn't realize this, it was just a coincidence, he was on the screening committee for the Fulbright guys. And when I came in, he said, what are you here for? And I said, oh, I'm auditioning for you. And he said... Don't do Upon the King again. I've seen it. You know, do something else. And He was tough. And he was tough. And I did not, I, I was not given Fulbright. I was chosen as an alternate. I was really depressed. That so you summer, went to Lambda. That summer, I got a note from the Fulbright Commission saying, the guy who was supposed to go dropped out, so you're in. So You would, made it by the skin of your teeth. That's it. Yeah. Now, why Lambda? Were you going to train for the musical theater? Or no, no, to... for classical theater. Right, classical theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yeah. were there for a year? I was there for a year. What did you benefit from that? Well, first of all, the exposure to the English theater in that year was unbelievable. It's incomparable. Unbelievable. And I, I got to see, I saw Olivier do not only Othello, I saw him do The Master Builder, mm. saw his production that he directed of the... Of the uh, of the crucible, oh, it, was, it was an amazing year. Were you ever tempted to stay there? Did no. you feel you belonged there? No. Americans doing classical theater 
still is looked on a little bit askance by the English. I mean, sure. you, know, you know, just like we don't, you know. I don't want them to touch Williams either. Exactly. Right. It's the same deal, yeah. you know. So you finished there and you came right home. I came back. Then I came to Lincoln Center and I auditioned for Jules Irving and Herbert Blau, who were just coming from the Actors Workshop in San Francisco, where when I had been, at, when I was a student at Berkeley, I knew all those actors. And I'd gone to see a lot of their shows and a lot of those actors were also at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Liz Huddle, Robert Phelan, Dan Sullivan, who's now, of course, one of our best directors. Mm-hmm. Um, this was the company. So I went and I auditioned. They said, you're, you know, come on in. You're the, you know, you're in the company. So I was married at the time. Why'd you do that? I know. Well, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. But we moved to New York, and, uh, that was, and I spent that first year. Uh, Danton's death, the country wife, the condemned of Altona by Jean-Paul Sartre and the Caucasian Chalk Circle. Not what you would call a banner, you know, commercial season. Yeah. And, they, and they just got murdered. These guys, they just got, well, because they came in thinking they were going to change the New York theater. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Who, who was your first wife? Her name was Catherine Baker, and she right. was... Uh, Where did you my, meet her? In, in Berkeley. At the airport while you were going from one location <laughs> no, to the other? No, not quite. But anyway, but she she was my college sweetheart. Yeah. She was your college sweetheart. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to ask you this as we go down the road here for each of your wives. What, uh, do, you think, uh, what do you think she loved about you? Oh, God. Did she love that life you were living? Did she love your passion and your commitment to acting? I have no idea. You'd have to ask her. You'd have to ask her, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't, yeah. Oh, God. But did you feel at that time that you had an intensity about you as an actor that was very, very uh, attractive to other people? Well, did you I, feel that? I, you know, no. I, I wasn't— uh, You weren't a, were you saying you weren't a ladies' man? Well, I was and I wasn't. I mean, I, you know, definitely. <laughs> you know, I definitely— No, I love that. I love uh, somebody who says, I was and I wasn't. Yeah. What does uh, that mean? Well, I love the lady. I've always loved, uh, loved sure. ladies, you know. Yeah. But, but uh, there's a misogynistic— element in my character that I think I have to, you know, deal about with. About trust? Trust? I, yeah. No, if I love somebody, and I, you know, I'm, I'm trustworthy. I'm in the same school. It's hard yeah. for me to trust people. It's yeah. hard. Hard. Yeah. So these guys from San Francisco come, and they're going to change the New York theater, and they kind of flop. Then what happens? And then I went back to my roots at Yale. Nikos Zakharopoulos was of course. in Williamstown. Yeah. And he said, come on up to Williamstown and be with me for the summer. Yeah. And, you know, and, I, and that was it. I mean, I loved doing that. I went up there and had a great, great summer. And one of my fellow students at Yale had this play that he had, that a very good friend of his at Berkeley had written. Barbara Carson was her name, and the play was called McBird, a play about Lyndon Johnson as the Scottish guy. And it was suggesting that he was responsible for the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Right. The play says that. Yeah. yeah. That's what it was. And it was a great cast. Bill Devane played uh, Mac- JFK. Uh, Bobby Kennedy. Right. Uh, um, Paul Heck played JFK. And it was, a, it was wonderful. We did it at the Village Gate. We thought we were going to get shut down. We thought the government was going to come in and say we were seditious. What year? 66. But Johnson's in the height of his Absolutely. We thought we were going to shut, get sure. shut down. We thought it was over. The FBI is coming. The ushers are in the FBI. Yes. <laughs> right. Nothing. Nothing. Not, not a and it's a hit. It's a big hit. Yeah. And that's what really got me going. That's what did you it. think about the, 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 the context? Because I'm a bit of an assassination 
uh, buff myself. This is the 50th anniversary this November. I know, I know. This year is the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy's geez, assassination, which I still don't think we know the truth about. I don't what either. You, well, what did you think about when you did the play? Was it? Uh, well, I, I was. Did it add up? Not really. Yeah, okay. No, no. But yeah. the, but the suggestion that he was somehow involved or knew what was going on was, was very palpable. Palip- he didn't mind that it happened. No. <laughs> The audience believed it. I mean, they actually, they'll put it this way, I don't know if they believed that it was true, but they certainly accepted the premise that it was worth dramatizing. It was something there. Yeah. Yeah. And that that ran for how long? It ran for a couple of years. I I, I stayed in it for about nine months. What's the longest run you've ever done as an actor on stage? Um... About nine months. About that was it. Well, no, other desert cities ran for about almost a year. I think that's that's about it for me. Stacy Keach's runs are sometimes limited by his desire to be near his family. He and his wife Malgosia, a native of Poland, lived in a suburb of Warsaw for several years when their children were teenagers. Stacy says he commuted from Warsaw to wherever there was work. When he was doing the TV show Prison Break, he was lucky there was a direct flight between Warsaw and Chicago. Coming up, Stacy Keach talks about working with director John Houston. I said, well, why? Why did you do that? How did you come up with this idea? And he said, uh, the devil made me do it. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of MoviePhone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. 
This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Many people don't understand how an actor can perform in the same play night after night for months. The truth is, it never gets boring. It's like skiing a black diamond run Mm. for me to go all the way down and not fall. And I fall every night. Yeah. One show I did recently, a few years back, I did give myself a diploma for having a perfect show. Right, right. I said every word as well. Because you you and I both know that when you get to that level where you're at, you know when you don't say the words right. Oh, yeah. You know the play backwards and forwards. You know every cue. You might not say it that way in real time. (laughs) No, no, no. So I came off stage, and I I said to myself, I I was... the stage managers were there and everybody on the prop people. And I came off stage and I said, well, there you have it. There you have I it. I said, there it is, yeah. the perfect show. Ah. I said, every line, as written, the way I wanted to say it and with the feeling I wanted. And I just really, really skied the run right to the bottom. That's happened to me once in my right. career. Wow. And every other time, I, I missed a little. I didn't, oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I wasn't connected to the speech. Well, I know. I know exactly what you're saying. I, when I, I, I What's the role you've been the most connected to? Well, I did Hamlet three times mm-hmm. to try to get it right. I never did. I never got it. Why I, do you I, say that? Three different productions. What was the first one? Uh, Long War Theater. Arvin Brown directed it. And, what year? Uh, let me see if I can remember the year. Uh, it was. It had to be 70. It had to be somewhere in the, uh, I think it was 70. So was young 70, man. 70. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah, I was actually... Well, they say Hamlet's thirty. You know, mm-hmm. so I was about I was about thirty when I did it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so you're up in New Haven. I was up in New Haven, and you know, the first time you play that part, you're, I was so intimidated by the fact of all the other actors who played it, and you know, it's intimidating. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and but you're once I this said, is your Hamlet. That's right. It becomes your Hamlet, and. Most of the time, I was concerned about getting the lines right and getting, you know, just getting the moves right, just getting it, just putting it all together and figure, and then trying to figure it out, which is what I, you know, I, I did. And then the next year, I mean, that that summer, Joe Pappett came, came and saw it and he said, come into the park and we'll do it, a different production, totally different production, different director, which was very hard for me to give up, Arvin Brown, and Gerald Freeman, who had worked with Elmig Bird, uh was asked to direct it. Were you happy with the new cast? Well, it was a fantastic cast. I mean, it was James Earl Jones. You the one with Colleen? Yeah. Okay. With Colleen, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, it was, yeah, yeah. And 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 I got a, I got closer to it. I got closer to I felt, you know, I, I never had the perfect show, but I got closer to it. And then... So that was two, right after New Haven. Right after. And then what? Two years later, Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, totally different production, Gordon Davidson directing. And um, Harris Yulin playing Claudius. Um, and um, I had one night where I got close, where I really got close. And then 
I don't know what happened. Something I think it was in the very last scene. The, I think the hardest thing about Hamlet is, is uh, you know, is is after that amazing duel in the last act, but when he dies, you know, is not to be caught breathing on stage. It's, it, that's the hardest, one of the hardest things to do, I think, in that particular play. I mean, anyway, but um, the perfect, that was your the third and final show. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the perfect show is elusive. It's. Uh, the fact that you found, I think one night I was doing Death Trap, I remember. Uh, Who'd you do it with? I, you know, I, the other, the actors that I worked with, I, I can't remember their names. This is terrible, terrible. Darren, I remember his name was, first name was Darren. So they weren't well-known people. Oh, yeah, but I mean, I love that play. Do you know? Oh, I mean, I, I, saw, I saw Brian Bedford do it at the Kennedy Center when I was in college. Oh, wow. I've often wanted to do Death Trap. Oh, it's, it's a great, a, it's a great piece. It's a great summer stock play, too. I love uh, uh, Schaffer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I did. I oh, did. it was Ira Levin. Yeah, it was Levin. Ira Levin. Right. I get right. confused, it too. Wasn't, it wasn't Tony Schaffer, it was Ira Levin. Right. I did a Tony Schaffer play with Sleuth. Yeah, which of course. Was the only that's why I confused it, too. Yeah, yeah, that's very similar. You did Sleuth. Yeah, yeah. Who'd you do that with? Maxwell Coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Good yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. He's a buddy of mine. Yeah, we, we're going to be. Him and Juliet Mills. We'll be together tomorrow night. We became very dear friends on Sleuth. And, uh, I love him. And, yeah, he's great. And Juliet is the godmother of my daughter, Carolina. How many kids do you have? Two. And you have two girls, a boy and a girl? Boy and a girl. So your son is how old? 24, and he's a student at NYU studying corporate communications and international business and relations. And his mom is wife number what? Four. Your current wife. Yeah. So your current no wife. No children by any other. No children. You, you did it. Per, you handled that beautifully. So, oh, my God. So you got the marriage right and the, then had the family. That's right. Boy, you clever bastard. <laughs> so three marriages. <laughs> what was the longest of the other three? Uh, two years. So, so the longest. Yeah. Two years. Yeah, that's right. Two, the longest two and a half. of the other three. Was, two okay, and let, let's, let's really round it off here. Uh, yeah, it was yeah, two yeah. and a half years. Yeah, yeah. You think you're tough to be married to? I do. You do. I know I am. Because <laughs> do, do you think it's your work though? Do you think yeah, that's that our you, business? Your dedication to this. I had a woman say to me once, a very famous woman, that her husband was a famous actor and he did a television series. This is many years ago. Right. And she said to me, he'd go to work and he was a father on the show. Right. And she said, and he gave everything he had on camera. She, he said he, he came home, he had nothing for his own children. Oh, that's too bad. He came home, locked himself in his room, mm. had a drink in his hand, had the TV on. He, just, he was just, like we said, he was just right. emptied out. Right, right, right. That's sad. Now, what no. changed when you met wife number four? Well, I only mention these things not, not to be, uh, 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 you know, uh, prying. I'm just saying, no. for a man of passion, when you get yeah. it right, yeah. what was the difference? What happened? What changed? Somebody who understood me, I think, really understood it. Gave you your space. Gave me my space. Let you be who you are. Absolutely. Which is a nut job. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> and that's critical. And yeah, but I mean, Sometimes. let's face it. Well, no, but Passionate. I mean, yeah, but you and I are, you know, we our lives are very active. I mean, yeah. we and we we spend a lot of time doing things that are not family related necessarily right. you know what's something you think you missed other than parenthood other than maybe more time with your family other than making ha having the opportunity at least to to make a better go of it with your previous wives because I'm divorced as well all that kind of stuff what's something you think that you would love to have done with your life that you missed because of this work because I have an answer for myself but what's your I would have been more of an adventurer more of an explorer more of an outdoors kind of guy I would have, you know, taken Going, off and gone on expedition. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I agree. I agree. I didn't do it. Mine was education. 
I would have gone back to school. And so now I sit back and I go, I like whenever I speak at schools now, mm. I say to people, because I'm teaching at, at NYU this, this right, spring, right. I say, how many people here um, are graduating uh, 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 now? And, you know, maybe like a quarter of them raised their hands in this lecture I gave to about 100 kids. Mm. And I said, how many of you, uh, so the rest of you are, are, how many of you are juniors? So another quarter of them raised. So the rest of them, half the kids were sophomores and freshmen in the acting program. Mm-hmm. I said, do yourself a favor. I said, this is the only time of your life you can read. Right. And really, on a dead, you're, you're here you. to Good. read. I said, take, take lit courses, take history courses, read, 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 because you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. I'm teaching acting this year. Where? I teach at, I teach at George Mason University. In D.C.? Via Skype. Wow. How does that go? I teach, well, it's wonderful because I'm teaching kids how to audition, basically, both using material from the theater and from television and, and movie scripts. The camera's right there. They have to get up in front of a camera just like they do in an audition. So they do a scene for me. I give them a critique. They go back. They work on it for a week. They come back and they show it to me again. I can And I can teach this course from Poland, from Los Angeles, from New York. Have you taught acting before? Yes. Where? When I went back to Yale as an actor performer, well, an, an actor teacher, um, some many years ago, when when uh, right after McBird, I mean, when Brustein first came into Yale, I taught I taught at Yale for a year, mm-hmm. while I was a member of the company, and I've taught master classes here and there. Do you so like I, teaching? I love it. You do. I do, and I and and I, my kids. One of the things that I they read, they have to mm-hmm. read, they have to read four, four plays, and write a report. They have to have quizzes on. You know, um, not just the things that they read in terms of uh, literature or, or dramaturgy. And I've discovered an acting book that I just think is fantastic called The Actor's Target, The Actor and the Target by Declan Donovan. It's a, he's an English guy. It's a fabulous book. It, and, Why is it fabulous? Well, because it, it, it sort of reinterprets the whole notion of actioning and it takes Stanislavski's ideas. He has his own set of terms, his own terminology which is refreshing in a way because it's not the same old stuff that we've been hearing for years and years. But I, I, I think reading is critical. And I know when I first got there, I was told by the university, that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to assign things for them to read. You can just have them read the material that they're working on in terms of the scenes that they're presenting. And I said, no, no, no. I, I've run, in the course of my career, I've run into a lot of guys who are illiterate. And mm. it's not good. I think the more you know in terms of the more uh, references, yeah, it's like a scale. Right, there's only so many notes. <laughs> right, you know, and you play them in different combinations, maybe. What what musical instrument do you play? Never played one. With your musical, I, I wish I could sing, but I can't sing to save my life. No, I can't can sing. I? You can't. No, but I, you know, I talk. You know, again, I have a pretty good ear, and I'm musical. I do play, and uh, but you play I, piano. Yeah, yeah, but I, I you grew up that way. Yeah, that was okay. Great. Yeah, yeah, I grew up. Yeah. And who was responsible for that? Your mom or your dad? My mom, basically, right. my, primarily. Yeah, right. you're going to practice, or you're not going to take the car out. You know, the, you know, one of those yeah, things. Threats, and threats. And we tried to do that with our kids, it didn't work. And they, ah, the screaming and yelling, and we gave in. Yeah. And I'm sorry I did. I think you know. Yeah. We, I, that, that's I, the way I we are now. We, we don't want to do the heavy lifting. I know. Our parents were willing to be unpopular. That's right. Our parents were what I call the Captain Bly school. Yeah, that's good. I've got a job to do here. Yeah. I've got to get this breadfruit back to England. Yes. And I don't care whether you like it or not. I know. Now our parents are all like, oh, please, don't yeah. look at me that way. Are yeah. you mad at me? That's right. And we just we shine our kids' asses all day long. I know. It's terrible. 
It's the end of the world, actually. Well, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) So you, so you were saying about teaching, though. That do you do? What I found is that when I teach, I don't say this, but I, I think it's, it it may or may not be implied when I'm doing this, is that I can't make you a good actor. You know, I can make you a better actor, maybe than when you came in. Right. If you have some ability, I can begin to point the way toward you what you might develop right but um but the, you either got it or you don't that's right i really believe that i do too and a lot of people don't i want to hear that well i know and in a degree granting academic program mm-hmm. you'll see that a lot of people have the grades to go to the fine institution and they're not necessarily the best actors no and i'll say to them the people i've worked with i'll say well why don't we tear out a couple seats here on, on the side of elijah and mm. let's have you give me a, a class of 20 people or two dozen people. Right. Let's have three or four kids who their cum and their academic credentials were, were okay. They were good. They weren't a complete bust. But you brought them in here not just for their benefit, but for the benefit of the other kids in the class right. who can see what good acting is exactly. in, uh, in, that, in that kind of uh, uh, embryonic phase. I find teaching acting, it's tough for that reason. It is tough. It's and tough. I, and you, you, you really nailed what I was just going to say. I've got 20 kids. Mm-hmm. And maybe of those 20 kids, four, you know. Could yeah, that's what I get. That's, that's about the number I get to. And Keach is indeed a good judge of talent. Henry Winkler was a student of his when he taught at Yale, and Keach said it was clear he would do something special. That was over 45 years ago. This is a man with stories, and he's finally put them down on paper. Stacy Keach has a memoir coming out this fall. All in all, an actor's life on and off stage will be published by Globe Pequot Press. It's an ordeal. I mean, to, to write a memoir, and you're going to be doing this one of these days. Why sure. did you do it? Well, I'm at that age, you know. I feel like, I, you know, I better get it down now. Otherwise, the truth, you know, yeah. as I saw it. Yeah, yeah. Get it down now because, uh, you know, you know, you know, time's running out. And so I wanted to, and I have a, a lot of stories to right. tell. And I work with a lot of great people, including John Houston. And, and, Talk uh, about Houston. What was it like? Oh, God. Well, the first, I remember the first time I met him, he came to visit me on the set of Doc. We were shooting a, a Western in Spain with Faye Dunaway and Herschel, and we were, and uh, this script, Fat City, written, it was a very popular book written by Leonard Gardner about boxing, and uh, and he came to see me personally on the set. I mean, to have John Huston visit me on the set of yeah. a movie, I mean, it was, you know, and... He was very gracious, and uh, he said, Stace, I've got a part for you, and I think you ought to take a look at this. And uh, he treated me as if I was his son, right from the word go. I mean, he and I, I, I just, uh, he was so warm. He welcomed you. Yeah. yeah that's and rare we, in the business. Oh, yeah, and, but he, he and, and he, he had no pretenses about, I mean, he, he was larger than life, he, he and he didn't, he didn't make any apologies for that. I mean, and and, and he was uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary human being. He loved to gamble, loved to gamble, and we. I wonder what that was about. Well, I, I, it's very interesting because we and I love to gamble too. I, you know, I enjoy. I, I mean, what's your could, game? Well, with him, it was backgammon. Right. We would play backgammon. Between scenes on the hundred bucks a game? No, 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 dollar, dollar a point. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he just so he just liked it for the for the for the fun. Yeah, but he, he wasn't a gambler trying to make money. No, not oh, okay. not with me. Now you know, but but we I went. I remember we went to we went to the Cannes Film Festival years you know a year later, and also to we were in London together, and he would you know he said let's go to the casino, 
He loved, you know, he do a little gaming. Yeah, a little gaming. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Yeah, and and he loved it. I think I don't know what is it about gambling. It's the Dostoevsky thing. I mean, the challenge of, I mean, they, they say that you, people gamble to lose. They don't really gamble to win, or at least you know to experience what it's like to feel what it you know how it, how to compensate for the feeling of loss. You know, I I think there's something to that. I mean, that was you know. Anyway, I, I love the, so the the line someone told me that people gamble to find that if God favors them or not. Ooh. They want to know, does God favor me today? Well, you know, I, if I, I win, then the, that's a, that's my sign that God favored me. I like that I, because I still I get on I get on my iPhone and I'll, I'll uh, you know and I, I there's a game called Bejeweled. It's a little bit like uh, Angry Birds, right? You know? And I feel like if I can get it right, then God's looking good. Yes, you know, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm complete. Yeah. I love it. I mean, you know. What was it like shooting the movie with you? So what was he like as a director? Was he insightful for you? Did he help you? Absolutely. He I mean, was. Oh, yeah. Well, he's an actor, first of course. You know, and he, and, but he, and he always wanted to give you your space. He never, he, I mean, he said, there's only two directions, days, A little more or a little less. Hmm. That was it. He never told me to, you know, try to, I mean, well, yes, he did once in a while. But I mean, but he would let us block the scenes. He would, he would Susan Terrell and I, God love her, we would, uh, he would say, go in there and you, you stage the scene the way you feel like it should be staged in a, a domestic scene in a kitchen or something like that. And, and we would go in there and we would stage the scene. We'd work out the moves. He a lot of trust to have in his actors. Tremendous. Yeah. Tremendous. And, but, you know, and, and, but he was right. He'd come in and look at it, and then we'd move things around a little bit, make a tweak here, a tweak there. And Conrad Hall, who was the cameraman, would yeah. come in and work with him. God love him. And, uh, and that's the way he worked. And then, uh, but the, the thing that really fascinated me about Houston was uh, at the very end of the movie, I'll never forget, Jeff Bridges and I were sitting in this, in this um, cafe, and it's the very last scene of the movie, and in the background there were these... People sitting at tables, smoke rising, and they were they were gambling, and they were playing cards, and they were talking to each other. And he said, "All right, I want everybody in the background to just freeze, just don't do anything, freeze." And you could see the smoke rising up, so you knew it was not a freeze frame that was done technically by the editors. It was something that he directed. And I said, "John, why did you do that?" And he said. Because you, you said, when Billy Tully looks over there and sees nothing, he said, I just want there to be the feeling that God is intervening here in some way. I said, well, why, why did you do that? How did you come up with this idea? And he said, uh, the devil made me do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I was just, you know, off the wall kind of, you know, comments. But... He was. He really. How was his health then? Was he pretty lucid then? He wasn't really very sick then. No, he wasn't. He was pretty together then. But he he chain smoked Monte Cristo number ones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was always a box of cigars under his hand and the yeah. back said in the other hand. Yeah. Wherever John Houston is, I want him to know that when the time comes for me and Stacy, we'll be more than ready for backgammon and cigars with him. Let me just say, as we finish here, that you know, I, I wrote the foreword to your book. Because you occupy a very unique place. You know, what stands out to me is that 
You're so comfortable on stage, and that transmit, there's a telepathic signal you kind of send to the audience. I wrote this story, I said, you know, you enthrall people and you, and you inspire people, whatever, but you welcome them at the same time. Because okay. when someone's on stage and they're uncomfortable, you feel it. Yeah. And you are someone who your commitment, forget about your talent, because you are a immeasurably talented man. Okay. But the companion with that is, is how committed you are when you go and do something, you give it everything you have. Well, so do you, sir. And you are a great inspiration to me. When I well, saw you do you other desert cities, I sat there and I, go, I looked at my friend and I go, look at that son of a bitch. <laughs> look how fucking fantastic he looks up on that stage. Oh, There's no place you. else he'd rather. And you had the audience right here. Oh, thank you, Alec. You're a treasure. Thanks for doing this with me. I loved it. <laughs> Thanks, man. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.